This podcast was made with Descript. Descript is a groundbreaking new media tool that allows creators to edit audio and video like a text document and create a realistic clone of their own voice for seamless edits. Please check out our Patreon at Asian Hustle Network. We want Asians to continue being meaningful and give back to the Asian community. If you enjoy our podcast and would like to contribute to our feature, we hope you become a patron. Hey guys, welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. My name is Brian. And my name is Maggie. And we interview Asian entrepreneurs around the world to amplify their voices and empower Asians to pursue their dreams and goals. We believe that each person has a message and a unique story from their entrepreneurial journey that they can share with all of us. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. Today, we have a very special guest with us. His name is Miku Matsumura. And Miku is a general partner at Gumi Ventures, a $30 million investment fund focused on early stage blockchain startups and a co-founder of crypto exchange Evercoin. Miku ignited his passion for open source software 25 years ago as a chief evangelist for the Java language and platform at Sun Microsystems. Since then, he has been building open source software startups in Silicon Valley, including raising over $50 million in venture capital for developer platform companies such as Gradle and financial infrastructure companies like Hazelcast. He holds a master's degree in neuroscience from Yale University, where he worked on abstract computational neural networks. Miko's mission is to promote increased transparency, equality, inclusion, innovation, and lower cost financial infrastructure through open source. Miko, welcome to the show. Okay, thanks for having me. Yeah, Miko, super excited to have you on. So we want to dive deep into who you are, you know. Where'd you grow up? How'd you become the person you are today? Sorry, very long-winded question, but very curious about who you are. No, absolutely. So one of the things that doesn't meet the eye is that I'm actually a Midwestern boy. So it's people see me and they're like, oh, you're a techie. You're like Silicon Valley. Like you must be from California. You know, you're a natural Californian. But it turns out that I was born in Wisconsin. And it's quite amazing because if you go to Wisconsin and you grow up like I did there, like it's pretty much me and my brother and then like no Asians. Like, I mean, you know, there was this kid, uh, Bill Yang, who... Uh, everyone was like, oh my God, you look exactly like Bill Yang. It's like, <laughs> we're both Asian? Like that, that was about it. So, yeah. you know, I think that was kind of the, uh, that was that was the scene for me. Yeah. Wow. That, that's, that's really awesome. I had no idea you were a Midwest boy. <laughs> yeah. And while you were growing up in Wisconsin, you know, seeing, you know, the population there and seeing that there were very little Asians, how did that kind of shape your Asian identity growing up? Yeah. Oh my God. So <laughs> much. I mean, it's really tough, right? Like, uh, obviously there's a bunch of issues that you get when you kind of grow up in that kind of model, because in a way it's much the Asian American experience less than the Asian experience, right? In the sense that there's this concept of like a minority. And in a way, like I've kind of took on the, I guess, the view of the majority, right? Like what I mean by the view of the majority, there's kind of a banana effect, right? Which is the sort of yellow on the outside, white on the inside, you know? So I kind of have that banana effect problem, you know? Because for example, like if you put me on a bus that's like I'm the only Asian person, I'm basically like, okay. And then if I put, if you put me on a bus where I'm like, it's all Asians except me or not, it's all Asians, right? Including me. Right. And then I look around, I'm like, oh, wow, look, it's buses full of Asian people. (laughs) You know, so like, you know, I guess that's a weird thing, but I would say that like the thing that helped me is that in a way I was always kind of singled out and it's not pleasant and it's tough, right? It's kind of a tough experience, Mm -hmm. you know, and in a way, like there's two things I learned. One of the things is I learned kind of the art of invisibility mm-hmm. right which is kind of like uh you know it's like a ninja ninja stuff <laughs> you know which is uh you know and I, I i make a joke about it but it's actually kind of like it's kind of bad actually right when you're a little kid like basically like here's an example it's like we, we would play dodgeball and i would always win in the in the game of dodgeball if it was like everyone against everyone Right? Or at least I would be in the top three. And the way I would do it is I would stand inside the ring and I would basically like stand as if I were a spectator. Uh-huh. I would just stand and I would face the inside of the ring right inside, but like at the edge. And I would just stand like I was a spectator. No one would ever throw the ball at me. Wow. 
and I would just be like, I just don't exist. I'm not even yeah. here, you know, and, and that's just an example of kind of being invisible yeah. at the same time as being visible. Right. And so the thing that I think I gained as a superpower, though, was which I really deployed when I came to Silicon Valley is mm -hmm. that I don't feel uncomfortable being singled out. And I don't feel uncomfortable when everybody's kind of staring at me being like, oh, that guy's different. You know, and so that helped me like because, you know, I, I eventually kind of got to be like a speaker, you know, in front of audiences, you know, and I, I you know, I gave this talks in front of like the at the Moscone Center with like 18,000 Java developers standing there, you know, and I just felt like uh, pretty at home because I was like, mm -hmm. you know, but some people just feel really when they feel separated from the pack and they feel singled out and they feel they get very scared and it's kind of like, welcome to my world. Like that's, uh, you know, um, yeah. I mean, I'm the, I'm the odd one always. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, we heard your story a couple of times before on the podcast as well. And very similar how people wow. feel like they, uh, very similar experience with yours where it's like, they feel like they're single out or they're invisible. And that seems to be a common theme. Amazing. Um, with Asian Americans that did not grow up in, in California or New York or, <laughs> or Seattle or Texas, you know, and it's really unique to hear you use your disadvantage to your advantage. You know, this the mindset difference to how you're talking to you right now. You're absolutely very positive about the situation, mm -hmm. whereas most people can easily take that in a very negative connotation and really like hide hide from the world. But you took that as, as your advantage. So thank you so much for doing that. Well, I would put it this way, right? Which is that it it's sort of like the phrase of that which does not kill you makes you stronger right so the the, the thing about it is is that like you know i'm i'm like 52 years old now so like in a way like uh the process of being traumatized by all that and kind of trying to get over it and figuring this stuff out like in a way like all of those challenges brings up these kind of profound capabilities right so like in a way when you think about people you know if someone doesn't have good eyesight then maybe their hearing gets better right because the basically uh, the bottom line on stuff like that is or or else you die. <laughs> I mean, like, maybe, you know, maybe not. But like, you know, in ancient days, maybe if you didn't have good eyesight, maybe you would die. Like maybe a tiger would eat you or something. Right? Yeah. But, but what if your hearing was like super powered, right? So like in a way, like the stuff that doesn't kill you, like you can you can kind of work with it. You can be like, OK, well. How, what did I get out of that? Like, you know, cause you kind of got savaged, but you know, ultimately like, you know, you have to spend a period of time kind of maybe being traumatized and, you know, and then you kind of have to like find a way to come out mm -hmm. somehow. Yeah. So walk us through your Michigan days. You see that you major in psychology at Michigan. Yeah. Neuroscience at Yale. And now you know, you went to a long, awesome career of like a tech executive investor how did that all happen? What was it yeah. going through your mind? Yeah. So, so I'll tell you a couple of facets, right? So I would say that like one of the common themes in the experience of Asian America is probably like the kind of strict parents, you know? So my parents were very much kind of like, oh, you got to study hard and all this stuff, you know? And so like, you know, like I went to Yale, my brother went to MIT and like, we were all just kind of busting our humps because like, that's mm -hmm. how we go. Right. So, you know, my dad was like, uh, you know, he, he, he's a tough guy. Right. And, you know, in a way he was kind of a tough guy in the template of Japan, right? Which is, you know, mm -hmm. the man of few words and just kind of very tough and, yeah. you know, tough on himself and tough on his kids. And, the, you know, but in a way, like that was his way of being protective, right? So in a way, like that was kind of what motivated me. And I, a lot of the things that we ended up focusing on were kind of the sciences because my dad was a scientist. So like in mm -hmm. a way, I was always kind of interested in humans and behavior of humans and what makes humans do things. But I think I always kind of was pushed towards science. So like the scientific explanation right so psychology for me was kind of like exciting because it was sort of why do people do things you know because it's it's sort of the most mysterious thing in the world right like you can look at the behavior of objects like physics and you can look at the behavior of a lot of different things but when you start looking at the behavior of people you're constantly coming up with situations where you're like why did they do that? Like, you know, increasingly I'm getting excited about history because every time someone writes down a piece of history, it's because they're doing something weird. 
Yeah. Right. Like that's how it becomes history. Like if it's just another, the same as every other day, then it's not history. Right. So then you look at history and you're like, well, why did they do that? Like one guy, I went to Romania and I went to this place, Transylvania, and I went to Dracula's castle. Mm-hmm. And I heard all these legends about Dracula and like all the crazy stuff that he did. Like, you know, he impaled a bunch of people. Like the guy was like a psycho. Right. And the thing that's so interesting is you kind of look at stuff like that. And you're like, what makes someone act like that? Right. Cause obviously it's a person's a, at some level, that person's a human being. Right. So at that, at some level, that person has to be making a set of decisions mm-hmm. that make them behave like this total crazy bones. Right. So I guess I, I would say that uh, I've always been fascinated by that. And the thing that happened that kind of came through kind of psychology and then neuroscience is kind of that really I was constrained by my expression because I had pretty strong parents that were like focused on like science. So like, you know, because Mm -hmm. of that, my dad was like, well, you kind of have to do science. And that was kind of how I ended up at, at Yale doing neuroscience stuff. I was also naturally super interested in computer stuff. So like, you know, that's why it became kind of like computers. And so the computers and the psychology were really me. And I think the science was my dad. And I think I just, that's how those things all came together. Yeah, I can listen to you talk forever because <laughs> I, I feel the same way. Like, I, I love, I'm fascinated by psychology. It's one thing where I, well, my sister did her PhD in psychology, so I read all her books, but I did computer science. <laughs> so the way you think, the way you broke things down, I, I love it. I love it. I, I feel oh, the same sure. way. And it's not that many people like that out there that talks this way or thinks this way, you know? It mm-hmm. kind of really breaks down everything. And just to bridge that analogy into blockchain, like essentially with blockchain, you're owning a piece of history. Mm-hmm. You know, so kind of see how everything connects now. Yeah. I love your framing. That is 100%. <laughs> that is 100P, which is that uh, the blo- all the blockchain is, is it is a novel history recording device. That's all it is, right? And, and the question is, what, what does it mean novel, right? So I think the two properties that make it pretty novel are, and, and one property that makes it very limited, right? Mm-hmm. The properties that make it novel are, is that it's really a consensus history, right? Mm-hmm. Which is just a shock. It's a shock because history has always been written by the winners, right? So whoever won the battle, like writes the history and says, you know, who really sucked with the guys that lost, <laughs> right? It's like the losers, they were just horrible, like, like horrible, like they were horrible people. They were doing horrible things. And then we defeated them. And that's, yeah. that's awesome. Like yeah. what, it's so great that we did that. And aren't we great, right? So that's history is written by the winner. But in the case of blockchains, it's, it's actually written by some random <laughs> node somewhere, you know? And so in a way it's a consensus history. So that's the first property. The second property that's exciting is, is that it, it is kind of, it's a history that has a property of immutability. Mm-hmm. Right. So and so, it. yeah. Right. Because the yeah. thing that's problematic is, is so the first thing that becomes super important is to really accurately record what happened. And the idea of consensus of what happened is about collective witnessing. And that's so important. Like, for example, here's the idea that is not blockchain at all. But, but if you remember like George Floyd, right? Like George Floyd suffered a horrible experience, you know, and, and he was killed. And, and, um, but what, what made that into a transformative event for our culture is collective witnessing. Right. Is that is that a lot of people witness this and how did they do that, which is there were a group of kids there and they took a camera and they pointed it at this and they were like, this is terrible. You have to stop like and I'm going to film this and I'm going to show everyone what you did. Right. And, and so the idea of this power of collective or community history created by witnessing is what we're seeing in in blockchain that's what the blockchain is and then the property of immutability is is mm-hmm. once that stuff gets written down mm-hmm. right like yeah. Yeah. we're done like there you can't erase it you, it's, it can't be erased right and the, why can't you erase it is because there's thousands of copies everywhere right, right? and if you right. just kind of try to come up with a false copy all the other no's will be like, I reject your, <laughs> like, that's not what happened. 
Like I didn't see that. None of these guys saw that. That's not what happened. You're, you're full of BS, you know? Yeah. And so like, that's beautiful. So I, I, I like that you kind of brought it in that way. Like that's a great way of thinking about, uh, of, of this. And in a way, one of the reasons why Bitcoin is so interesting is that if you're owning any fraction of a Bitcoin, you actually are, owning a piece of, of history, the history of the internet, right? It's like, okay, well, the internet evolved its own monetary system. What? Like, like, how could that be? And it's like, okay, well, you can own a piece of that. It's like, okay, now I own a piece of the bank of the internet uh, owned by the people. So that's, that's fascinating. I looked that's up the, the founder of Bitcoin and it turns out that he's from my hometown. Like, I, I grew up in Temple City in California. I'm like, wait a minute, he's in my hometown? Who is he? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so. you, mean, you mean like Dorian Satoshi? Yeah, yeah. I, I looked up his history and I was like, Temple City. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I do want to take it back a bit before we dive deeper into blockchain. So we see that, you know, you were at Sun System, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Sun, Sun Microsystems. Microsystems as the yeah. chief Java uh, evangelist. Um, how did that, what was that transition like over to becoming a focus venture investor and limited partner? We see that you're at Sun, Sun Microsystems for five years, right? You're working yeah. for five years and you decided to become a, a into venture. How did that transition happen? And Yeah, I'll, I'll describe it. I'll describe it. So one of the things that was so fascinating is I came out of Yale University and I was all kind of a developer and I had been programming. So I just started programming stuff and I actually did a brief stint at Wired digital, mm. uh, you know, which is the digital arm of the magazine before they sold it to Condé Nast. And so basically it was this kind of really crazy group of people in South San Francisco, right at third and Bryant in this kind of big warehouse. And we basically were just building this kind of future internet. We invented stuff like the banner ad and like, there's a bunch of crazy things we did there, but eventually what happened was, was that I kind of ended up getting really excited about this programming language called Java. And mostly in graduate school, I had been programming in C++. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that Java solves a lot of what is horrible about C++. Like it's just that C++ is kind of a nightmare to program in. And Java is kind of a dream uh, to me at the time. And so like I quit Wired and I joined Sun, which is the creators of the Java language and platform. And the thing that had happened to me that was so fascinating is, is that like um, one of the people in history that always fascinated me and who I always held up as a hero uh, was Guy Kawasaki. Right. And Guy Kawasaki was the evangelist for the Macintosh. Right. And so with Apple. Right. So in a way, I just got inspired to sort of take a similar role for Java because, you know, the idea of a developer evangelist is someone who helps a platform with developers, right, to, to build applications and to make the platform useful. So that's kind of how I got into the role of evangelism, right? Because it turns out that like, uh, I was only so good at programming. And when I got to Sun, I was hanging out with like, James Gosling, the creator of Java. And you know, I was hanging out with like people that were just like, multiple orders of magnitude smarter yeah. and better at programming than me so i was just like oh my god these are like giants like these are just like epic people and and there were just talented people just hanging out all around at sun right like for example yeah. like whitfield diffie like he's he's uh-huh. he created uh, diffie hellman which is like mm-hmm. one of the primary cryptography algorithms you know so there were just these random people hanging out that were just like these genius level computer scientists and things so basically okay. what it meant is it meant that i made a hard left turn into mm-hmm marketing right because basically as a developer evangelist like you become essentially a marketer and and Mm -hmm. the thing that happened that was so amazing to me is that uh it became a culmination of my kind of lifelong interest in human behavior right so all of a sudden i was kind of like why do people do things and it's like well marketers and marketing are all about figuring out why people do things so what's the tunnel into investing. So the tunnel is, is that we actually had a venture fund 
at Sun called the Java Fund. And the Java Fund was basically done in partnership with Kleiner Perkins, who at the time was kind of like a preeminent venture capitalist and also the VC that originally funded Sun Microsystems. Uh, It turns out that like uh, Vinod Kosla, who was part of Kosla Ventures, was actually at the time at Kleiner Perkins, you know, and he actually was part of the founding team at Sun Microsystems and he actually moved from Sun to Kleiner Perkins. So like there's just this revolving door. And the, the, yeah, the yeah. so the but the point being that Sun and Kleiner Perkins were tied together at the hip and they created the Java Fund. And so I actually got super interested in all of that because, you know, so I started like getting excited about startups and I got excited about open source and I got excited about venture capital and I got excited about marketing and like all those things kind of like became sort of my uh, you know, my my the next couple mm-hmm. decades of my life. And what I really like about this story is how multifaceted you are. I, you're not pigeonholed into one category. Uh, you know, you, you've tried different things and obviously you're very successful at it. And I really like that too, because I think that was the biggest challenge for myself at least was when I wanted to change my major or do this and that. I got a lot of criticism from my parents, a lot of criticism from oh my parents. Oh my God, criticism yeah. from the parents. When I left graduate school, like that was a hell hole. Like that was <laughs> a bad scene, right? Because in a way, yeah. my in my dad's worldview, like he basically escaped kind of like a bombed out Japan after World War II. Like he was a kid when the bombing started. And, you know, by the time he was sort of a young kind of uh, undergraduate, you know, after graduated from uh, Tokyo University, uh, he ended up getting a scholarship to go uh, leave the country. So Mm -hmm. he came to, he came to Canada on a UN scholarship because the United Nations basically felt sorry for Japan because they were like, oh yeah, like your, your country got like bombed to shit and like, there's Mm -hmm. nothing there. So like, you know, we're going to, we're going to give you guys grants and you guys can like become, you know, scientists in a global setting so my dad jumped at the chance but like for him science was like a lifeline so basically he was basically like if you're gonna leave science like um it was almost like you're walking off the path into like a minefield like he was basically like you know so so that was that was extremely difficult that was probably the most challenging time in my relationship with my dad Mm because basically he was like he was convinced that I was just like committing like seppuku like he was convinced that oh. i was like killing myself like, <laughs> oh my science goodness. you know wow. and so like think about the pressure like think about think about how a parent acts if they think their kid is like you know gonna you know basically killing themselves you know like that, that was the emotional energy i mean I, he didn't think i was gonna die but like he yeah. you know but he acted like it yeah well that's because science was his lifeline you know he, yes. he, he had so much passion for it was there that's anything it. that you did in response to you know how your dad responded to your actions what what did you try to do to make them feel you know at least confident that you were going to be successful oh man <laughs> uh in a way it just became kind of intolerable i mean we we ended up uh we ended up actually uh you know like just working it out over the course of years. So it, 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 there was a while there where it was just really, the relationship was not that good. Cause in a way, the thing that's really bad is when you're not fully grown up yourself, like if your dad is like, you're really screwing things up, like the next thing you're doing is you're telling yourself the same damn thing, you know? So you're like, you know, you're just sitting by yourself. Right. And all of a sudden you're like driving in your car. And then what do you say to yourself? You're like, dude, you're really screwing things up, you know? And it's like, where's that voice coming from? You know, and it's kind of like, uh, you know, like use the force, Luke, right? Like it's, it's this kind of like voice that's coming out of thin air, you know? And it's kind of like, yep, that's my dad. But like, it gets so deep. Like, and to me, like, this is such a deep part of what I consider to be kind of an Asian experience, right? Which is that, you know, the Asian, Asian culture, has these kind of strong roots in Confucianism across many parts of Asia, not South Asia as much, but like in Northern Asia, Confucius reigns. And he is so respectful of elders, right? Like the, like the respect for your parents and your elders, you know, I do think that that, um, I know a little bit about like Indian culture and they have this concept of the Yayati complex where the son, it's the opposite of the Oedipus complex where the son actually sacrifices himself 
for the benefit of the father. Right. right. And, and it's not in that Oedipus complex, the son kills the father, right. Which is more Western. Right? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, in a way this, this relationship between the elders and the young people are mm-hmm. it's in Asian culture. Like it is heavy. It is definitely yeah. heavy. The, the feeling of total obligation and fealty, like it's, it's, it's so painful to kind of like try to come out from that. Yeah. yeah. I feel like your, your stories and examples are, are so strong, you know, like it, it's very refreshing because we, ha- we haven't had such good analogies. <laughs> oh, thank um, you. So I really, really appreciate that too. And I, I do want to now dive deeper into your, your experience as a founder, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, especially with, with Evercoin. Yeah. You started Evercoin in January 2017. So congratulations on your four year anniversary. <laughs> oh, thank you. That's amazing. That's how, thank you for noting noticing. As you're transitioning over into this founder position, how did you identify a niche in the market at the time to pursue this? Well, I mean, it's a work in progress, right? Uh, so, you know, obviously in a way, like things aren't the complete until they're complete, you know. So I, I would say that like, you know, the the biggest thing uh, was related to my co-founder, you know, so my co-founder just became obsessed with things like Bitcoin and, and, you know, he just kind of like pulled me in. So, you know, a lot of the kind of credit goes to, you know, my co-founder and kind of his foresight into kind of understanding the depth of this emerging technology, you know, and for me, like, um, I'd worked previously with him on a company called Hazelcast and Hazelcast is kind of this very deep, high performance financial infrastructure that's used at like Visa and MasterCard and it's used at Apple and it's used at all these banks, you know, JP Morgan, it's used at a ton of banks. And so like, um, it basically, uh, my co-founder was able to identify, uh, Bitcoin as basically being another open source financial infrastructure, you know, and a, a very novel open source financial infrastructure. So that that became my battle cry and my thesis, which is the way I understand blockchain is as an open source financial infrastructure, you know. And so because of that, I just feel like, uh, you know, it's it's and it's it's so interesting to see how it's twisted and turned over the years. But like, mm-hmm. you know, for me, the imperative became to kind of, um, you know, push into that and to, to make an effort around it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And for our listeners, um, some of them may not know what open source means. Can you explain in your words what that means? Yeah. So um, the thing that happened in the software industry through my career is that uh, there is two kinds of software. One is open source, the other is closed source. And it's pretty much governed by a license. And what the licenses are, are basically what you're allowed to do And what is it that you're obligated to do with the software, right? And so there became a set of licenses called open source software licenses. And basically the the central thesis around open source software licenses are kind of two general properties. One of them is, is most, more often than not, it's free software, Mm -hmm. right? So more often than not, there are open source licenses that you actually have to pay, uh, which is kind of a twist, but 99% of the time when someone says open source software, they're talking about free as in free beer. Like it doesn't cost a penny, right? So the second property though, that's even more core to open source software is this idea of it's open. And what does that mean? What it means is that the code that it's used to run the program Mm -hmm. is published on the internet and anyone could just read it, right? And so that, uh, a lot of that actually drives the freeness, right? Because if you just allow people to read everything that, that the developers wrote, you know, it's pretty hard to like charge money for that at that point because you know, everyone can just copy it, which is what they do. So that's awesome. That's open source. That's awesome mm-hmm. explanation. Yeah. Uh, so we did, we just scrolled through your Twitter this morning and we saw you and we're going to ask a very elephant in the, in the room type of question. What do you think of Bitcoin right now? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So uh, here's the thing is if you look, one of the things that's good to do is go, go to a place like CoinGecko or CoinMarketCap and just go find a chart, a Bitcoin price chart. Right. And what I want you to do in that Bitcoin price chart is I want you to zoom all the way back, zoom it back as far as you can. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and look at look at what it is. Right. And I think the thing that is really important to understand that people are starting to understand is that like <clears throat> people in the first big 
sort of all-time high, people used to say that it was like tulip mania, right? Which is this phenomenon that happened in the Netherlands where the price of tulips went to like thousands of dollars, right? And so uh, people were like, oh, Bitcoin is this craze and it's going to go away. And then they're like, it's going to go to zero, right? So the thing that is true about tulip mania is you see a a chart that goes all to the moon and then it crashes to zero or it crashes to the nominal value, right? Like a, a tulip has a nominal value, which is it's pretty. So, right. So like how much would you pay? And it's like $3, right? It's like, that's the nominal value, right? So it crashes the nominal value and it stays there. Right. But the thing that you can see from the chart is you can see that it's like, Oh, all time high. Then it kind of crashes down. And there's some time period where people are like, Oh, well now it's going to go to zero. And it's like, uh, but maybe not, you know, and today, it's, yeah, and today it's pushing kind of 34,000. Right. So I have, I have a saying and my saying, this is a, I think a, 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 I've never heard anyone else say this is, is imagine that, imagine a man standing in a high place, mm-hmm. right. And they're standing on a, a, a metal beam, but the metal beam that they're standing on is known to collapse. Mm-hmm. it's going to collapse right and they're in a high place so what does that mean if it collapses they're going to fall like a long way and then die right so so imagine this person right what kind of imagination is this well i'm imagining the economy mm-hmm. which is if you look at the dow jones industrial average it's north of thirty thousand. we are all collectively the economy is standing in a very high place now when mm-hmm. i say it's known to collapse we know that from 2008 So in 2008, it collapsed. So the question that arises is, what if a clever person puts a beam of an unknown substance Mm -hmm. next to you? What do you do? So what you do is, it's obvious what you do. What you do is, do you just jump on the new beam? No. (laughs) Because you don't know what it is. You're like, what is this beam? Like, I don't know what it is, right? So what you do is you put a little weight on there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But then what do you do? You take the weight off, Mm -hmm. right? Because you're like, I want to know if I can put the weight on and I want to know if I can take it off. Like in Bitcoin terms, what does it mean? It means that they're testing it as a store of value. So what are the two functions necessary for store of value? The two functions are put the money in Mm -hmm. and then take the money out. Mm-hmm. Right. So you have to test both. You have to test putting the money in. You have to test put, pulling it out. Right. So so what you're going to expect is you're going to expect someone to shift their weight one percent and then pull it off. And then you're going to shift, maybe put five percent and then they're going to pull the weight off. And then you put, you know, so the idea becomes like that's the what you're seeing. If you if the if this were a scale of the person's weight, you would actually see exactly what the Bitcoin chart is doing. Right. Right. Which is that it's going higher and each time it goes higher, it's passing a test, right? It's it's passing a test. It's like, well, can it handle this? Handled it just fine. No problem. Okay, fine. Can you handle this? Okay. Handle it just fine. So it's kind of like each time it does that, people are like, whoa, that's amazing that it handled this one. I wonder if it can handle an even bigger one. Right. So I think that's so. So now if you reason about it that way, uh, then you can actually easily understand what's happening, right? Which is that people are like, oh, well, the beam that we're standing on is known to collapse. So like, we, what do we have to lose? We, we, we should check out this new beam. Like, what is this about? Yeah, I really like how you broke down the human psychology of it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm envisioning it right now. So it's really easy to kind of put that in my vision. Essentially, we're building trust as a yeah. system that we don't know anything about, or most of don't know anything about. Yeah, exactly. So we, we, we have to kind of try it and we have to, and the thing is, is that there's nothing like trying it. There's a phrase in decentralized finance or DeFi called test in production. Mm-hmm. No. And it's, it's a scary concept. It's a scary concept. But, but why is it valid? And the reason why it's valid is, is that you kind of have to know if it's real right? Like, how do you know if it's real? And the way you know it's real is, is you actually really do it, right? So it's kind of like, how do we know that Bitcoin can carry 500 billion US dollars inside of it? Let's put 500 billion dollars inside of it and see what happens. And it's like, did it break? Yeah. No, it didn't break. It's like, okay, great. It worked. So so now we know, now we know, we know, we know, we know it can safely hold 500 billion. 
right? So then it's then it's like, do we think it could maybe hold more? Let's find out. Like, we right. don't know. We don't know. Maybe it can't. Maybe it can't. Maybe maybe at five hundred and one billion, it falls apart. Actually, we know it that it doesn't because <laughs> it's already higher than that. But like you know, but who knows, right? So that's that's what we're saying. Is we're saying yeah. we don't know. Let's check it out. Mm-hmm. I do want to ask a very off-topic, off-tangent question. Sure. Back when you were younger, did you ever imagine you to be where you are today and doing what you're doing? Oh, man. Uh, absolutely not. Like, uh, when I was very young, I think my aspiration was uh, I wanted to be a marine biologist. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so that was kind of a, my, my dream. And I think the thing about it was, was I knew I kind of liked uh, the ocean and I knew like, I liked riding around on a boat and I liked, uh, you know, I, and obviously like whatever it was that I wanted to be had to be in science somehow. So like, mm-hmm. you know, so that, that ended up being sort of the aspiration, you know, so I, you know, it's a, the world is incredibly mysterious. So like for me, um, you know, I'm kind of surprised to be doing what I'm doing, but you know, I, I think as I get older, I'm much more interested in kind of like, figuring out what it is I'm, I'm meant to do and what it is I'm supposed to do, you know, mm-hmm. and, and that combination is really the, uh, the thing that drives me. I, I think that's a really powerful thought too, because a lot of, including myself, I feel like at any stage of your life, you always wonder what is your purpose? What are you meant to do? What are you good? What are Can you- I throw some Asian philosophy? Yeah, of course. Absolutely. <laughs> so, so, I was I, for my whole life, and I continued to identify as a non-theistic Buddhist, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I think of myself as a Buddhist, as a, basically Zen Buddhism, and I, you know, I practice meditation and this kind of stuff. But like one of the things that happened, so my dad passed away, like maybe about you know eight nine years ago, and and when it happened, like my it froze up my practice, and I wasn't able to kind of figure out what to do. I'm sorry to hear. Uh, I appreciate that. I mean, it was kind of a blow. And obviously, like from my perspective, it's just such a central figure in, in my life and life story. And and the thing that happened was, was it's, it's so amazing because my reasons for doing things kind of dried up because I, I, in a way, the question that was a puzzle for my whole life is kind of like, like, who is my boss? Right. Like that was the question of my life. Right. And in a way, like, you know, like my boss was always my dad at some level. Mm-hmm. And then uh, whatever other kind of like short tempered foreign guy, like I could find. Right. So that was kind of my pattern. Right. And, and the thing that happened when it all fell apart for me was I actually started looking even further east. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that, that I came across that was so interesting is I started learning more about Buddhism as a renunciate uh, type of spiritual tradition, right? So in a way, uh, it's not about kind of lay people and it's not about householders. It's about kind of monks, right? So it's right. very much about like, oh, how do you escape this condition? You know, and how do you become like a go in a cave and, you know, uh, get enlightenment, right? And, and in a way, like that felt difficult for me because I was kind of really in a worldly situation you know i was kind of in a you know living in in the world as opposed to trying to escape the world and so what i ended up discovering is i ended up discovering um sort of the um i guess i would call the indian buddha right Mm -hmm. it turns out the indian buddha was like it was the proper buddha by the way (laughs) you know it was indian and and he the original Buddha was basically a scholar of the Vedas. And so I started studying uh, yoga and I started studying kind of more of the tradition of, of uh, what people call Hinduism or the Sanatana Dharma. And, and the thing that I came across is this amazing, wonderful book, the Bhagavad Gita. And so, you know, I, I don't want to like overstate because I feel like it's uh, I want people to understand that this is a non-theistic kind of secularist view, but like it's, it was very uh, philosophically and spiritually transformative for me because the lesson that I got is that your boss is a combination of your own personal nature, mm-hmm. right. right? And universal nature, mm. right? And that, that's the combination, right? The combination is, is that if you obey your personal nature, and you connect it to the universal nature, right. then you will have an unerring 
experience on earth. Right. Yeah. And, and so that, that philosophy and that spiritual philosophy just clicked for me at mm-hmm. that time in my life because so it, in, in a way it it made me transform from having this kind of idea of an earthly boss and the idea of being beholden to another human to being beholden to my own essential personal nature right. and also beholden to yeah. kind of the universal nature right which mm-hmm. you know and so it's kind of like well what is what is that doing? And, you know, and what am I doing? And why am I doing that? You know? And so in a way it then became more about that expression and to be kind of perfectly transparent, like um, I feel like some of the things happening with Bitcoin is almost like this emergent property of what's happening, you know, in nature. It's, it's right. feels like a, a, almost like an emergent natural phenomenon, you know, and obviously there's humans behind it and driving it and things like that. But like, mm-hmm. in a sense, it's kind of like doing itself. Like it's mm-hmm. Bitcoin is just kind of functioning as a function of itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's amazing. It's really enlightening to hear. Yeah. yeah. I'm really taking a moment here to yeah. really digest the information mm-hmm. that I just heard. Yeah. Uh, it's so, it's so empowering, you know, because mm-hmm we don't get a lot of guests like you on the podcast. Or... <laughs> yeah. Well, I want to relate it because I want to relate it to the, the nature. Cause this is a, the Asian hustle network, right? So mm-hmm. if you yeah. look at the word Asian, right? Like I want to embrace the whole brotherhood and the sisterhood. Right. And so mm-hmm. for me, when I talk about Asian, I talk about Asian philosophies, right. And what's common across kind of Asia is really, and obviously like there's a greater Asia, like central Asia, which includes a bunch of like Islamic brothers and sisters and whatnot. But like, I'm mostly kind of focused on Eastern and Western philosophy. Right. And if you go to Eastern mm-hmm. philosophy, like you know, you just have to expand the scope into like looking at the karmic traditions, you know, and you look at these kind of cultural roots that we have and you just go back to the oldest roots of these karmic traditions and you end up with, you know, it's, it's, it's the Vedas. It's like Indian philosophy. It's just old, old Sanskrit. Like it's just this ancient stuff that's been going. And the thing that I think is important is connecting that to hustle, right? So if it's an Asian hustle network, then the question is, what does it mean to be Asian? Right. And what does it mean to hustle? Right. And, you know, I think those are really important concepts and constructs right because right? the thing about hustle is not only what does it mean but why yeah. like why are we hustling you know and yeah. it's kind of and there's so many different themes and layers right because in a sense like i spent a huge chunk of my life hustling because i didn't know what else to do right and in a way i was kind of scared because mm-hmm. like you know i didn't want my dad to disapprove or be angry or whatever mm-hmm. and like that I, you know, I think fear is a powerful motivator to right. hustle. Another a motivator that's really interesting and incredibly powerful is like anger mm-hmm. is like sometimes like, you know, I had really productive periods in my life. I've had super productive periods in my life where I was fearful. Mm-hmm. I've had super productive periods of time in my life where I was angry and like, yeah. you know, because basically what happens now that I'm older I'm reflecting on these and I'm just thinking that what fear is, is it's free energy for action mm-hmm. that's provided by nature in, in terms of like a, a defense, right? Yeah. It's basically provide, it's like, oh, you need to provide defense. Here's some energy. Mm-hmm. And if you look at anger, it's free energy provided by nature for the purpose of defense. <laughs> it's the exact same thing. It's just that it's a different approach. Which is that if someone has transgressed a boundary, right, you get angry when you want to confront and you want to smash that person. And in a way, it's an attempt to assert a position that's an alpha, right, which is basically Mm -hmm. like, I, you know, you went over the boundary. I got to I got to bring it to you. I got to I got to hammer you for that. Right. Uh, That's anger. And then fear is basically the beta. Fear is basically like, oh, man, they're coming through the boundary. Uh-huh. And like, I, yeah. I, I can't like, like, I'm definitely going to be overpowered here. Like, so yeah. I, I got a deal. I got a deal. But does that drive a person? Unquestionably. Right. right? Like, like, so to me, like, and, but the question becomes, how do you experience these emotions and harness those emotions mm-hmm. without 
traumatizing yourself or, you know, without re-traumatizing yourself, right? Because a lot of the concept of the, you know, uh, when I look at across the stories that come out in the Asian American experience, like, you know, you look at uh, people who emigrated to the United States and a lot of the people that emigrated, you know, they, they definitely have an incredible energy and they have incredible power, but in a lot of ways they come out pretty traumatized too because they're leaving situations that are not hot right it's like well why'd you why'd you split from where you were you know and it's mm-hmm. kind of like things weren't cool there you know in so many cases uh, obviously there's other examples too right like there's certain people who are like well yeah i immigrated because like uh i had to go to harvard and you know I, and stuff like that you know so so whatever you know it's not every story but i gotta say like that that's that's in that's in the template yeah, well, I, I love how you put that. I think for a lot of people, they even have fear of feeling fear. So it yeah. makes them traumatized and it makes them paralyzed. But, you know, like you said, like fear is good. And it means that you're entering into an unknown territory, right? And anger, it just means that you're passionate about something. And so it could yeah. be, you could use it to your advantage. And, you know, about the Asian hustle network, I love how you broke that down because that's what we were focusing on before. Like, what does Asian mean to you? What does hustle mean to you? It can mean a lot of things. It could mean a lot of different (laughs) things to different people based on your experiences. And for you, you know, it's based on your experiences of, you know, Buddhism based on your experiences with your father. So you have a specific meaning and a special meaning of what hustle means to you. And I really like that. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. And, you know, to me, the thing that I think is sort of really essential for me mm-hmm. is like when you talk about fear and channeling the anger, channeling the fear, channeling these powerful emotions, the thing that's so interesting is like I talked about like yoga, right? So like, you know, when you go back to the roots of yoga, it comes back to the Sanskrit word yuj, which basically means a yoke. Mm-hmm. Right. So if you think about what a yoke is, a yoke, uh, Y-O-K-E, is, is a harness. Mm-hmm. And it's a harness, it's a mechanical harness that, that taps the energy of, of, like a, of, like a, of like a bull, right? So the bull is like charging and the yoke is the interface between the bull and the plow, right? And so what does that mean? What it means is that the bull represents the animal spirit and the animal energy. So in, in a sense, all of the fears and the angers and all of this stuff is our birthright. It's our heritage. It's stuff that we get from nature. Nature's like, hey, guess what? You get to feel scared. It's like, thanks. <laughs> yeah. Guess what? You get to feel angry. Okay. Thanks for that too. You know, like, oh, you get to feel sad. Okay. That's thanks. That's all, you know, it's all, it's all given to you. Right. But the question becomes what is happening? What is, what is that yoking? And the yoking is, is what is the plow? The plow is cultivation, mm-hmm. right? Culti- and if you go back to the root of this concept of culture and this concept, I mean, even the word cult, it sounds like a bad thing, mm-hmm. but it just means to care for, to care. Right. So it's like, what is happening? Agriculture, right? Which is, it's, it's, you're plowing the soil, right? You're, you're preparing the soil for harvest, right? So, so what I'm trying to say is I'm trying to say that that's the kind of heart of, of the, of, of the yoga philosophy, right? Which is the yoga philosophy is about how do you live in a non renunciate way like how do you live in a way that's not about escaping this world but about living in this world and the philosophy of yoga basically gives you this idea of like you have to harness this energy right Mm -hmm. it's like the animal energy is our birthright right so so it isn't that it shouldn't rule over us like we can't you know and just all of this is very harmonious with this new year Uh, i'm not astrologer or anything else but like you know i don't believe in any of that stuff but like um, it's the year of the cow, right? And, you know, to me, like when I think about a cow, you know, it's like, well, the female cow is like the cash cow, you know, produces milk. And the male cow is like the bull, you know, which is kind of like the bull market for bitcoins. So, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, so, so the question becomes like, how do you harness that energy? Like, how, how do you, how do you really kind of tap into, you know, because that's where it gets organic and that's where it becomes a servant rather than a master, right? Because, you know, if the fear is living you or if the anger is living you, then you're not in charge and Mm -hmm. you're, you're, you're not living your life. You're, you're, you're being lived by these extremely powerful, you know, by the ego, by, by like, you know, you're, you're being driven by 
uh, nature itself. And it's, it's, you're no longer the boss. Yeah. That's amazing. So Nico, we have one last question for you. What advice would you have for someone who's trying to get into cryptocurrency? Yeah, I would say read books. Uh, there's so much BS on, on the internet and people will tell you all kinds of creepy things. And the thing that's great about books is that, uh, books take a long time to write. And, you know, and the thing that happens is, is that crypto things come and go, Mm -hmm. right? So in a sense, like if you're going to like, let's say you're going to write a book about like some shit coin, right? Like by the time you're done writing the book, the thing's already, it's already gone, you know? So like, you know, read books and I I will recommend certain books. Uh, One of them is Mastering Bitcoin by Andreas Antonopoulos. That's a great book. Uh, uh, Another one is called The Book of Satoshi. And it's basically a book that collects the writings of the Bitcoin founder. There's another one that's more entertaining called Bitcoin Billionaires, which is about the Winklevoss brothers and Charlie Shrem and Roger Veer and all the kind of original uh, Eric Voorhees, like all the kind of original Bitcoiners, OG Bitcoiners. Uh, And then there's one uh, called the Bitcoin Standard. Mm -hmm. So uh, all four of those books, uh, highly recommended. because really those will allow you to kind of sink into the first principles. Obviously you can read the Bitcoin white paper, um, you know, at the, at a minimum, just read the abstract, just read the kind of paragraph that sits on top of the first page of the Bitcoin white paper. It's, it's the abstract simple enough. The paper itself gets a little deep, but mm-hmm. uh, you know, but I, I, I bet, you know, those are all the things that I would do. Cause I just, and, and, you know, I, this is kind of like a shameless plug, but like, you know, I have a show, uh, Miko.com slash bits and it's a YouTube show. And like, you know, I talk to a lot of people who are advancing the cause of Bitcoin and blockchain. So, you know, feel free to stop by, you know, uh, click subscribe if you like it, you know, cause I think that's a great, um, resource, you know, and my goal is to try to educate people and, you know, help people understand this emerging phenomenon through the lens of what I call open source financial infrastructure. Awesome. Thanks for those recommendations. And where can our listeners find out more about you online? Yeah, the easiest is Miko.com, M-I-K-O.com. And you can just head there. Uh, my uh, Twitter handle is weirdly still Miko Java, M-I-K-O-J-A-V-A. <laughs> so it's kind of harkens all the way back to the, my roots in the industry. Awesome. It was amazing hearing your story today, Miko. Thank you for being on the show. Yeah, thank you so much, Miko. Yeah. I appreciate what you guys are doing. And, you know, it's, it's great that Asian hustle has its own network. So (laughs) (laughs) thank you, Miko. Fantastic. Yeah. Have a great day. Hey guys, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe to the show. We would like to get to the top 10 on iTunes. So be sure to leave us a five-star review. We release an episode every single Wednesday. So stay tuned. Thank you guys so much.